Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. That's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. In our first segment, our guest is probably the most well-known genealogist in the country, Dick Eastman, the author of Eastman's online genealogy newsletter. CompuServe is a classic story of, uh, of the Internet. They, they were really the biggest online service. They were king of the hill. And they said, we're got, we are the top, and we're going to stay this way forever. Well, you know what happens with that attitude on the Internet. <laughs> we all know what happened. They, they were the deer standing and staring in the headlights on the side of the information superhighway. And these 18-wheelers went past them. It started off... Uh, 1996, one night, I sent out uh, a newsletter to 100 people who didn't know it was coming. Now, keep in mind, this is before the word... Was that the, the word, first spam? Not, no. Probably. Uh, this was before the word spam had been... Well, at that time, it meant a, a canned meat product. Yes. Uh, spam was not a phrase used with email in right. 1996. And it was very well received. I, I shudder to think if I did the same thing today. I just arbitrarily sent something out to 100 people. I guess they would accept it. Yeah, there'd probably be a lynch crowd out in front of my house. So, um, but but it was an innocent time, and it worked. Yeah. I've told people uh, if I had ever created a business plan of what the newsletter would become, this would not have been it. Really? This was not a planned event. It just kind of mushroomed. That genealogy interest has mushroomed, and I've just ridden on the back of that. Then in our second segment, we're going to help you along on your own genealogy journey. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools to help you reach your ancestral goals. In today's show, we're going to follow up on our last episode by discussing how to order Social Security Death Index records, as well as talk about how to locate and order those primary source death certificates, which will provide the facts that you need to climb your family tree. Eastman was one of the early pioneers in bringing genealogy online. For the last 12 plus years, he has covered genealogy and technology in his incredibly popular Eastman's online genealogy newsletter, available at eogn.com. I met up with Dick recently at the Family History Expo in the Phoenix, Arizona area, and we sat down to talk about his amazing career. I don't know if I have to introduce the gentleman next to me, but I will. It's Mr. Dick Eastman. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. This is kind of fun. I think we're switching things up on you. You are usually the one doing the interviewing. I've been known to do a few of those. But, you do. Uh, I'm, I'm much more nervous this time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I'm much more comfortable on this side of the microphone. But this is fun because actually what we're doing here is kind of inspired by so much of what you have done. Yeah, I, right. Everywhere I go, I see you doing video interviews and... Holly Hansen here from the Family History Expos put together our little set. I'm impressed with this. you got to admit, this is pretty good background. Yeah, I love it. And it, it just kind of 
radiates the energy that you feel here at Mesa. We're in Mesa, Arizona. Our first time here, what do you think of the turnout here in Mesa? Uh, it's about what I expected. Yeah? I, I've been watching uh, Holly and our crew for a few years, and I like their, their business model. And when I heard they were coming down to the greater Phoenix area, I said, you know, that's going to click. That that should turn out to be a good show. And uh turned out I was right. That's <laughs> one of my predictions that worked. And uh, uh, they've had, I don't, I don't know what the attendance is, but it's a 1,000 or over a 1,000, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And it's been kind of a hubbub, uh, not so much the second day. The first day was really amazing. The second day settled down a little bit, yeah. but it's just been uh, fun. A lot of people, most of whom, from what I can tell, have not been to a significant genealogy conference before. Yes. some exceptions to that. But the rank and file that come in here are, are very uh, enthusiastic and uh, looking for something new. And you're finding that because you're over at the footnote booth, right? Yeah, I've been hanging out and helping them out uh, with their booth. It's kind of interesting, or right dead center, which is kind of an interesting location. That's a good and place. And it's uh, worked out well. Wonderful. You know, because I'm interested, well, I'm kind of on the tech side of things, accessing mm-hmm. podcasts. Definitely I know you, you are. are. You, you do much more of that than I do. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you're the tech guru, but <laughs> I think that what I'm finding is that this audience who's come, they are pretty savvy. I haven't had to explain what a podcast is very often. How are you finding the responses to using sites like Footnote? Well, they're all web savvy, and the, 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 the sites vary, obviously. Footnote is not a big name, so there's been a lot of explanation of what is it. Mm-hmm. So you're right. There's no explanation of here's how you use a web browser. We're yeah. well beyond that with this crowd. Like everything in genealogy, it tends to attract an older audience, mm-hmm. and it's been kind of fun. When I started doing genealogy, uh, the words technology and the phrase senior citizen didn't match. They, they didn't right. work very well. Today, the seniors are some of the more techies and available. They tend to have the time. Yes. And they like to experiment. I used to go around at these conferences, and I, I would give introductory talks on how to use technology, how to, right. how to log online. There's no requirement for that anymore. Those talks have gone away. We just don't have a need for them anymore. But you were like one of the first genealogical presences online. You kind of helped, yeah. you know, pull people no, in. There were quite the a few newsle- before what, me. What the newsletter and just the newsletter was the way of pretty early. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've been doing that for twelve years, and that's been a. I've told people uh, if I had ever created a business plan of what the newsletter would become, this would not have been it. As this really, was, this was not a planned event. It just kind of mushroomed and. Uh, genealogy interest as mushroom that I've just ridden on the back of that uh, ridden on the back of that mushroom. I guess that's not a good phrase. But you know where <laughs> I'm going. Ridden the wave, right? Yeah, the wave. That's <laughs> it. I've ridden on the wave. Much better. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> well, what would you? What were you kind of thinking it might be when you first started? Well, you were on AOL, right? Uh, no, I started off on CompuServe. CompuServe. Uh, and actually, I've been doing something very similar on CompuServe. But CompuServe is a classic story of, uh, of the Internet. They, they were really the biggest online service. They were king of the hill. And they said, we're got, we are the top, and we're going to stay this way forever. Well, you know what happens with that attitude on the Internet. <laughs> we all know what happened. They, they were the deer standing and staring in the headlights on the side of the information superhighway, and these 18-wheelers went past them. There's probably a CompuServe ex- former CompuServe executive watching this right now. is probably fuming, but that's okay. So I was doing this on CompuServe, and I, I loved that service. They were great. But I began to realize I was losing the audience. It was, it was getting slower, smaller and smaller every year. And email was a big distribution method. I still love email. As much as I'm on the World Wide Web, I still believe the most popular activity online is email. Yeah. And while my newsletter is available on the web also, 
I still consider it to be an email newsletter. That's my distribution method. So I basically what took what I had been doing, and I just handed an email because that was a method to get to more people. Right. So it started off uh, 1996. One night I sent out uh, a newsletter to 100 people who didn't know it was coming. Now, keep in mind, this is before the word... Was that the, the word, first spam? No, no. probably. Uh, this was before the word spam had been... Well, at that time, it meant a, a canned meat product. Yes. Uh, spam was not a phrase used with email in right. 1996. Uh, and it was very well received. I, I shudder to think if I did the same thing today. I just arbitrarily sent something out to 100 people. Yeah, well, I guess a lynch, they would accept it from Yeah, there'd probably be a lynch crowd out in front of my house. So, uh, but, but it was an innocent time, and it yeah. worked. Yeah. Um, uh, it's grown a little bigger than 100 nowadays, and uh, we have some fun with it. You are really re- reaching a large audience. But, you know, the key is email was the true first mm-hmm. viral medium because you could forward it to a friend. Right, and I'm still a big fan of email. We do web, we do podcasts, we do this, we do that. But email is works and it's reliable, and it, it's just a, a great distribution method. Yeah. And I may experiment with some others as well, but I still like email. Fantastic. And I want to talk a little bit about, because you have a history here with Family History Expos and mm-hmm. with Holly Hansen, the president. Tell us a little bit, how, where does that relationship start? I've met her about 10 years ago, I guess. Yeah. And she said, I'm, I'm putting on a, uh, a conference or an expo, whatever she called it, <laughs> in St. George, uh, Utah. And I said, where? And I'm sorry, I'm from the East Coast. I had no clue where St. Yeah. George I had to go home and look it up. Uh, I didn't know where St. George was. And I said, why would anybody put on a sh- uh, an expo there? But I went to it. She invited me to speak, and I, I didn't know how to say no. So I went to it. I figured there would probably be about 50, 75 people show up. And I was, I was floored. I walked in, and they had a mob. Wow. And it was a very enthusiastic group and very different than the conferences I had been going to before. They were more beginners. Mm-hmm. Uh, Holly's always been very uh, effective at bringing in uh, newcomers. Uh, they were very enthusiastic. The weather was great. I came out of New England, and I think that was in February, so you know, oh. it was a good time to escape the, the cold. Yes. But I liked it so much, I went back again the next year, and then the year after that I went back again, and um, it's just worked out. Now, her business has grown. She's expanding to other venues, and she's got one going on here in the Phoenix area, and it's not quite that cold back home yet, but Phoenix is a place I've spent oh, a lot of time. beautiful here so, this Why not? Yeah. And the airfares are cheap. Right. I, got a, I got a round trip ticket, very cheap to come here, so here I am, and it's it's, uh, really it's worked out well. I do like the fact that the expos um, cater to all levels of experience. That uh, even a novice could come here, make the rounds in the exhibit hall, and start tapping into classes right. and get on the roll. Yeah, you know, all the major conferences will offer classes for beginners, right. but I think uh, this one here, the Family History Expos. They've just been a little more effective at that. They go out of their way to attract the beginners. Uh, some of the other uh, conferences will offer a few beginners classes. So this one here has got a, I don't know if it's 50%, but it's a fairly good percentage. And yet they have other things for the advanced people as well, particularly in the area of technology. And there's a real sense of um, friendliness here. I think people don't feel real intimidated. They can just kind of jump in and, and get going. I've noticed a lot of people asking questions at the nope. vendor's booths, not afraid right. to um, check it out and see You're what absolutely they're doing. Right. The other thing, and I'm looking around here at, at our exhibit hall, um, one thing that uh, the Family History Expos have been very good at, they go into the smaller cities or the smaller conference halls. They get the uh, arrangements with hotels that are uh, 
somewhat less expensive. <laughs> Instead of being in a convention center in downtown Phoenix where the hotel rooms are $180 a night, yeah. we're 10 miles away, which is really trivial distance, mm -hmm. and we're getting hotel rooms at $80 a night. And we're in a conference center, gorgeous facility. It is. And I don't know what it costs. I have no idea, but you know, I bet it's not as expensive as the one downtown. And I love it because it, it's really good for the vendors as well. Because if you don't have to spend twice as much no. on the air on the hotel, you can get to buy some goodies here in the exhibit the, hall. The uh, the admission fee is yeah. also significantly less than some of the others. So I think it's a very effective venue. Uh, going to the I don't want to say the second tier conference centers. That's, that's not the right phrase. But trying to avoid the extremely expensive ones. Uh, right. Holly's been very effective at that. And really reaching the masses. Well, tell us, I mean, obviously, uh, just thousands and thousands of people are reading your newsletter. What's on the horizon for Dick Eastman? You know, I never know. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, uh, the newsletter, if you if you do read it, you yeah. know, it varies from week to week. Yeah. Uh, there's very, there is no master plan. And the articles that I write or other people write, I've now uh, got two uh, authors helping out. I was going to ask you about that. Okay, let's, yeah. let's talk about that. Uh, a year ago, it was my product, and I'm helped a great deal by a lady, Pam, who edits all of it and ends up rewriting many of my words, and, and <laughs> that's a good thing in this case. But it was essentially a solo effort with, mm -hmm. with one person helping a lot. Almost a year ago, we added George Morgan, and uh, I, that was an experiment. And George writes one article every week, and George's a prolific author. He's been yes. around for years. So that was an experiment to see how it worked, and it turned out it worked out very well. I was very pleased. So if, Two months ago, three months ago, we added uh, Lloyd Boxstrick on it. Now, Lloyd is another prolific author with a very different set of expertise. Lloyd is what I would, he's writing primarily what I call the traditional genealogy. I tend to write the techie stuff. Mm -hmm. George is in between. Uh, Lloyd writes about research. He's very strong in research in southern ancestry, Texas particularly. He's uh, very, very strong in some of the... Uh, societies, the lineage societies, right. uh, very traditional topics, and I, I think we're getting a balance out of this. A little early to tell yet, but I'm, I'm kind of enthusiastic about it. It's exciting. You're bringing a whole so, mix of skill sets. If it, if it grows another, uh, you know, 500,000 subscribers, maybe we'll add another author. <laughs> and tell us the website, Dick. <laughs> uh, let's see. Can we see the shirt? E-O-G-N. dot. That's, and that's abbreviation. It stands for Eastman's Online Genealogy Newsletter. I'll tell you a thing. If I ever started a newsletter again, I would never put my name on it, and I would never have it four words long. It's a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, but it, we abbreviate it, EOGN.com. It didn't seem to slow too many people down in finding you. Um, <laughs> I've had a few people say, where? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining Thank us you. on the show. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks uh, for the invitation. It's kind of fun. It is kind of fun. We'll have you in the seat more often. All right. All right. I'll think, you know, I'll, I'll hold you to that. Good. We're back, and I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. And this is the place in the show where we give you the tools to successfully research your family history. Now, I want to start off with an email I received from listener David Green. After listening to Episode 3, he had some great questions about the Social Security Death Index. He writes, I was wondering about requesting the original SS application form. I have heard it may include parents' names and other information. Have you done this before? Did you have success or find it useful information? 
I have also heard that some other people who did not have birth certificates before they were kept, they applied and received ones as adults because they were needed for SS applications. Again, I have heard that these are often not kept with the original birth records in some states. Have you ever found one like this? I usually assume if they were born before the start of birth records, they don't have one. Thanks for this great new series. Well, thanks so much for writing, David. These are great questions, so let's take them one at a time. Yes, you can order the application that your ancestor filled out when they applied for Social Security. Now, I've done this, and they are really neat, but they aren't cheap. So let's talk about the facts that you're going to find on them so that you can determine if it's really worth the expense. Now, I'll have a link in the show notes to an example of a Social Security application. The form changed it's kind of slightly over the years, so yours may end up looking a little different than this one. But here's a rundown on the information that you're going to find on it. The applicant's first, middle, and last name, their Social Security number, their address, age, date of birth, place of birth, father's full name, mother's maiden name, sex, color, and the date that it was issued. And in most cases, you're going to see the applicant's actual signature. If your ancestor applied prior to 1947, then you will also very likely find the name and address of the company that they worked for and possibly even their position title. So if you're really interested in seeing your ancestor's signature or you haven't been able to nail down some of these facts, such as the mother's maiden name, then that $27 investment might be very well worthwhile. Now, in the 1970s, the Social Security Administration microfilmed all the SS-5 application forms, created a computer database of selected information from the forms, and they destroyed the originals. So it's important to order a copy of the microfilmed original rather than a printout or an abstract just from the administration's database. And luckily, now you can request a Social Security application, the SS-5 form, online under the Freedom of Information Act. So go to ssa.gov slash FOIA, that's for Freedom of Information Act, slash HTML slash FOIA underscore guide dot htm. And I will have that link for you in the show notes. And just click on the online SSA dash 711 form. You can make payment online with a secure online payment via pay.gov with your credit card. And the cost of ordering a photocopy of the original SS5 application as of this recording is $27 if you know the social security number of the deceased person. And it's $29 if you don't. But of course, by using the SSDI online, you're probably going to have that social security number. You can also print out and mail in your request if you want to. You can still pay by credit card using form SSA 714. Now, be sure to provide your name, the account number, and the expiration date of your credit card. Or you can pay by check or money order. And you got to make sure that your name, address, and phone number appear on the check. And uh, be aware they don't accept cash. You can then mail your request to SSA. O-E-O, D-E-R-O, F-O-I-A, kind of love the government for all their uh, abbreviations. It's P.O. Box 33022, Baltimore, Maryland, 21290-3022. 
And again, I'll have that address for you in the show notes. Now, be aware that a Freedom of Information Act request can take up to six months to receive, but more than likely, you will be looking at getting uh, the application in the mail in about a month or so. And here's a little background on the Social Security number itself that you might find interesting. It's a nine-digit number, and it's made up of three parts. That first set of three digits is called the area number. Now, this number was assigned geographically. Generally, numbers were assigned beginning in the Northeast and moving westward. So people whose cards were issued in the East Coast states have the lowest numbers, and those out on the West Coast have the highest numbers. Prior to 1972, cards were issued in local Social Security offices around the country, and the area number represented the state in which the card was issued. So this wasn't necessarily the state where the applicant lived, since you could apply for a card at any Social Security office. Now, since 1972, when the SSA began assigning Social Security numbers and issuing cards centrally from Baltimore, Maryland, the area number assigned has been based on the zip code of the mailing address provided on the application for the card. And, of course, the applicant's mailing address doesn't have to be the same as their place of residence. But in general, the area number does give you a really good lead as to where to look for your ancestor geographically. The next two digits in the Social Security number are called the group number, and they were just used internally to track fraudulent numbers. And the last set of four digits is the serial number, and those were just randomly assigned. I'll have a link to a chart of the numbers and the states that they correlate with in the show notes for this episode. So if for some reason you don't have the state that your ancestor was from, that first three-digit area code number, uh, you could check it against the chart and get a clue as to where they might have been located. And if you are interested in reading about the history of the Social Security, you'll find a comprehensive overview at the ssa.gov website. And again, I'll have that link for you directly to that page in the show notes. Now let's talk about David's other question about delayed birth certificates. Just like when the crash happened in 1929 and there was a run on the banks, in the late 1930s and early 1940s, there was kind of a run on delayed birth certificates. And this is because for many folks who qualified to apply for Social Security at that time, they were born prior to official birth certificates being kept in their state. Or in the case of my great-grandmother, she was born in an area of the U.S. that wasn't even technically a state yet. Our ancestors needed their birth certificates to prove eligibility for Social Security. Anytime someone needs a birth certificate for any reason, they have to contact the state and often the county in which the birth occurred. If a birth certificate exists, they can simply purchase a certified copy. But if there were no birth certificates issued at the time of the person's birth, they can have a delayed birth certificate issued by that state or county. In order to obtain a delayed certificate, they had to provide several pieces of evidence of their age. Now, if these are considered satisfactory, the government would issue the certificate and it would be accepted as legal proof of birth by all the U.S. government agencies. Well, originally, people turned to the census for proof of age. 
1880 census was used to locate folks who qualified because the 1880 census asked for the age of each person as of June 1st of 1880. Children under the age of one were listed in fractions of a year, such as four slash twelve or eleven twelfths. And if you're familiar with census records, which we will be covering in upcoming episodes, that's why the Soundex and the Mirror Code indexes were developed. It helps locate people on the census pages of the 1880, 1900, 1910 through 1930 censuses for some states, but not all of them. Anyway, eventually, the Social Security Administration began to ask for birth certificates. For folks like my great-grandmother, who was born at a time and a place where birth certificates were not issued, that meant that they had to locate documents that could prove their age and allow them to obtain that delayed birth certificate. And delayed just means that it was issued after the time of their actual birth. And I want to mention here that delayed birth certificates are not primary sources. Remember we talked about primary sources in the last episode. Well, since the delayed certificate was based on other documents and it wasn't issued at the time of the event by an authority, such as the attending physician, then it's not a primary source. This means that while it's a great background information tool, it is more prone to error And in order to do the most accurate genealogical research, you'd want to try to find a primary source if possible. Now, chances are your ancestor used another primary source, such as an entry in the family Bible, to obtain the delayed birth certificate. The process for ordering a delayed birth certificate is likely going to be the same as ordering a regular birth certificate. You would start with checking with the county courthouse, uh, in the location where your ancestor was born, and then move on to the Department of Health for the state that you're looking in. Let them know that the birth certificate is a delayed birth certificate. Also, the Family History Library through the LDS Church, their card catalog would be a great place to look, as many of these delayed birth certificates were actually microfilmed. So go to familysearch.org and click on the Library tab, and then click Library Catalog and do a keyword search using the words Delayed and Birth, and you will get a comprehensive listing of all the records that they have available that are microfilmed. So the lesson here is that even though your ancestor may have been born at a time or in a location where births were not officially recorded by the state, they may very well have a delayed birth certificate on file. And indeed, I found one for my great-grandmother. And what was really neat is that I learned which documents she used to prove her age. I guess great-grandma was a bit of a genealogist, too. Now, the Social Security Death Index is just one resource for getting information. But in the end, you're going to want the primary source for your ancestor's death, and that's the death certificate. While many of your ancestors born in the 1880s may not have a birth certificate, there is a much better chance that they have a death certificate since they may have died in the 20th century. Each state in the U.S. began mandating death certificates at a different time. So you have to find out the laws in the state and probably the county that they died in since death certificates were filed at the county level. Now, as I've said before, The death certificate is going to be able to provide you with a wealth of information. 
Of course, you'll find the name, date of death and place of death, and possibly their age at death and the cause and the exact time of death, place of burial, funeral home, the name of the physician or medical examiner, and any witnesses who were present. The certificate is a primary source for all of that information. You may also find information such as the date and place of birth, current residence, occupation, parents' names and birthplaces, their spouse's name, and their marriage status. But because this information is provided by someone other than the ancestor themselves, it is really hearsay, and the certificate is considered a secondary source for that kind of information. And lastly, you may find a name in the box that says informant. This is the person who reported the death to officials. Informants are often spouses, children, and sometimes, depending on the person's circumstances, just a friend or a neighbor. But the informant is almost always somebody that you are going to want to investigate further because they obviously were very close to your ancestor. Now, once you think you know the location where your ancestor died and the approximate, if not the exact date, you're ready to order a certificate. If the person died in the last 50 years or so, you'll probably have really good luck at the county courthouse Department of Vital Records. The older the record, the more likely that it may have been shipped off by the county records department to the state Department of Health. So if you're unsure, just do a Google search like North Dakota death certificates, and you'll very quickly be able to hone in on where they are held. You could also research North Dakota vital records. Also, I find that most county websites have a vital records page that will tell you the years they hold in their records and the years held by the state. So just do a Google search on the name of the county and put vital records. A really good website resource is Cindy's List website death records page. And I will have a link for you in the show notes for that. If you go to that page, you'll find um, by state a listing of best places to look for death records. Whatever entity ends up holding the death certificate that you're after, the process is pretty much the same for obtaining it. Here are some tips that will ensure that you don't get bogged down in bureaucratic red tape when you're trying to order the death certificate. Get the appropriate request form. This is usually available online or by calling the department that you're trying to get the certificate from. Print neatly and clearly, because if they can't read it, they're going to send it back to be redone. <laughs> no point in doing that. Provide as much information as you can. Keep in mind that, that if you don't have the exact date of death, they can search, but it may cost a little bit extra. Provide your best guess of the time span to be searched. Next, provide a self-addressed stamped envelope. Most agencies require it, and it will ensure the fastest turnaround possible, so you might as well go ahead and just include it. Make one request per envelope. It keeps things simple, and again, it ensures that the request is going to be processed promptly. Also, be sure and include a photocopy of your driver's license to prove your identity. This is just becoming a more common requirement, so again, you might as well do it and avoid the uh, chance that they'll send it back and ask for it. And be sure to include your check for the exact amount that they're asking for. And be sure and make a copy of the request form for your records and follow-up. On that copy, write the address that you mailed it to and your check number. So if you do need to follow up, you can. 
And lastly, keep in mind that county offices have limited personnel and they're often swamped with paperwork. Genealogical requests are done as a service, even though it's considered outside the realm of their responsibility. So my best advice is that the most courteous and thorough that you are, the more likely you're going to have some good success. The last thing you want is to wait four weeks for a death certificate, only to get a reply asking for clarification or more information. With the Internet, there is another avenue now for getting your hands on death certificates. In the case of very old death certificates, as well as birth certificates, some state agencies have opted to hand them over to the state archives and historical societies in their state, or at least make them available for digitizing. For example, the State of Minnesota Historical Society partnered with the Minnesota Department of Health on an extensive records management project, and now they make available on their website an index covering death certificates from 1908 to 2001, supplemented by death cards from 1904 to 1907. So as you can imagine, you could possibly find an ancestor, as I did, who was born in the early 1800s, who died after 1904. And you can search the index for free, which will give you their name, the date, the mother's maiden name, if available, that's terrific to get, certificate number, and the county involved. And you can order it right there from the website for just $9. I've ordered lots of certificates this way, and the customer service is terrific. Many of them arrive just in a week or two. And I noticed that the Ohio Historical Society offers that same service for just $7 per certificate. So again, try a Google search on the state and then just type in Historical Society Death Record. And there you have it. Lots of different avenues for tracking down your ancestors' death records, providing you with key information for climbing your family tree. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021, and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.